1: And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts.
2: It was a number of years ago, traveling into China, when I first very clearly and distinctively became aware of the international problem of human trafficking. You know, We think of slavery and things of this sort from an American perspective, largely based on America's experience with the issue of slavery back in the 1800s. It was an eye-opening, startling experience for me to come to the realization that human trafficking is very much alive all over the world today, even taking place here in the United States. And it it takes place in, in many fashions for a lot of different reasons. In China, walking along a street in a major city of the South one day and seeing a number of young girls, some of whom had obvious limbs missing, had been maimed, perhaps, I thought, in an accident of some sort. And in talking with a missionary friend and interpreter, I began to inquire about the alarming number of young ladies that I saw on this particular street that seemed to have a a missing arm or a missing hand, something of this nature. And I inquired as to why this was, feeling it was kind of unusual. He went on to explain to me that, well, these are cast-offs. These are young girls who had been... ...kidnapped from their home villages... ...brought into major cities... ...and sold as sex slaves... ...largely to tourist trade... ...and on occasions... ...these young girls would fail to cooperate... ...would perhaps try to... uh, ...turn their captors into the authorities... ...and so as retribution... ...they would typically cut off an arm... ...or a hand... ...to maim them in one fashion or another... ...as a means of defiguring them... ...making them less desirable handicapping their ability to earn a living, and ultimately punishing them for not being cooperative with the sex traffickers. That opened my eyes to what has become a global problem, and as we talk about this topic today, I'm joined by Sean Litton. Sean is Vice President of Field Operations on behalf of International Justice Missions. They direct casework operations around the world in places from Latin America to Africa, South Asia, Southeast Asia, developing intervention strategies and advocating with local and national authorities to address the problem of human trafficking around the globe. And, Sean, great to have you on the program today.
3: Craig, it's wonderful to be with you. Thank you.
2: That experience that I had in China a number of years ago, I sadly have come to discover was not a unique and rare one, but in fact is taking place in more and more places around the globe today, even in so-called developed nations. Tell us why.
3: Well, uh, the main problem, as we see it, is in uh, countries where the laws against these crimes are not enforced at all. In other words, the traffickers, the criminals, the pimps who are uh, Uh, Selling these children have no fear of any sanction, no fear of any repercussion, no fear of any negative consequences, and so they engage in this practice with impunity, despite the fact that in almost every country uh, today, it's against the law. It's against the law to sell children for sex.
2: And yet in spite of that, of course, we see the sex trafficking trade uh, growing pretty significantly. Of course, we've perhaps caught a special or two of what goes on in in places such as uh, parts of Southeast Asia, um, countries that we're all too familiar with, Thailand, for example. And as this sex trafficking trade is is growing and developing, um, talk to us a bit about, number one, how girls get even pulled into all of this. And and why it seemingly is being allowed to flourish in some countries,
3: right? So, the children that get involved typically um, are migrating. So they're 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 from very poor and impoverished areas, and someone comes to their village. Somebody from their same ethnic group. Uh, they generally refer to them as an auntie. Um, They come to the village, maybe they're from the village or a nearby village, and they they say, tell their parents, you know, I can help your daughter find a good job in the city. The daughter feels a debt of gratitude to her parents uh, in many of these cultures, and and she's obligated to care for them. And so she wants to help her parents, so she'll go with this auntie. And and then the auntie, uh, it turns out, is a trafficker, and rather than give her a good job or take care for her, this young woman will be sold into a brothel. And once there, um, she's, she's locked away. She's, she's kept from going for help. But even if she could go for help, usually she doesn't speak the local language. Um, she sees the police coming by the brothel and collecting money every week. So there's really nowhere for her to turn. She has no access to her family. They're from a village up in the hills or far, far away or even in another country in many cases. And she's literally trapped. And then uh, if she refuses to participate, if she refuses to cooperate, they'll deny her food. Um, In many cases, she'll be beaten. She'll be forced to watch, watch pornography. And just over time, they will wear her will down until she submits. She submits herself to this abuse um, that goes on day after day after day after day.
2: And these girls, Sean, literally get trapped into this scenario. They're far away from home. They're embarrassed about the circumstances that have taken place. And quite often, those that are engaged in the sex trafficking threaten these girls and their families, don't they?
3: Absolutely, yes. And so, you know, the trafficker will tell the girl, I paid good money for you. And if, if you don't cooperate, then, you know, I will find your family or there'll be stories of girls who have attempted to run away only to be brought back and killed in front of the other girls to frighten them into submission and cooperation.
2: It's pretty horrifically manipulative, isn't it? I mean, aside from the horror of what they're drawing these young girls into, quite often, as you suggest, uh, they are trying to better their station in life, maybe move from a village into the city with the hope and promise of earning more money to take care of their family. Maybe they're somebody in the family that's ill. They need uh, money because of additional medical medical. medical expenses, things of this sort. We've even seen cases of human sex trafficking taking place where women and men sometimes are being lured with promises of of immigration into the United States. And if you come over, we'll help uh, pay your way and get you into the country, things of this sort, only to find out that once they arrive here, not having any contacts, having no command of the language, suddenly they're being forced into sex slavery.
3: Exactly. Yeah. And they have you know, their, their passport, if they had one, has been taken away. So they're in the country illegally and they feel there's nowhere to turn. If they go to the authorities, they'll be arrested for, you know, illegal immigration.
2: We've seen the stories, as I mentioned earlier, coming out of places like Thailand, the Philippines, other so-called even uh, sex tourism destinations. And certainly I think there's a growing sense of awareness of the problem glo- uh, globally. But I'm curious, Sean, based on your years of involvement with the International Justice Missions, I understand you, in fact, came out of private practice in your own law firm to be involved in this ministry organization. Are we hearing more of these stories simply because the reporting is getting better, or are we hearing more of these stories because the horrificness of this crime is on the increase?
3: It's hard to say exactly. There's, there certainly is a great deal uh, more reporting and a great deal of it, more attention being uh, focused on this issue. But at the same time, what you have is massive economic migration happening um, as people in more in poorer countries move towards those who are more wealthy, where there's more jobs. And this is, a, this is part of globalization. It's part of a global phenomenon. At, at the same time, more and more roads are getting into these villages, you know, that have been formerly isolated and safe and by their isolation, and so then the traffickers have access to more and more uh, people to, to move into the sex trade. So it's a combination of, of both greater attention on the issue, and, again, I, I do think that's expanding as the process of globalization and the process of economic migration uh, increases.
2: Talk to us a bit about the role that International Justice Missions is taking in not only addressing increased awareness of this, uh, creating a more hostile environment for those in, engaged in the trafficking in the slavery end of, of all of this, but then, too, uh, the hope that your organization is providing and helping to get these women, and sometimes men, out of this terrible lifestyle.
3: Right. So... When In our offices, so for example, I worked in an office in Thailand, also in an office in the Philippines. So we'll do investigations, and we have undercover investigators that will go out and locate these establishments that are selling children for sex. We'll document the identity of those children, the identity of the individuals that are selling them. Um, we'll We'll bring that back. We have a team of lawyers that will review it. We'll write a report, and then we'll go to the local authorities. and and advocate with the authorities and the evidence that we bring of the it's a violation of law but now they have such strong evidence of it that they can't deny it's happening and so we'll push them and push them until they take action and then the the object there is to ensure that the girls are rescued and that the individuals that were exploiting them are brought to justice so there's an arrest uh, criminal prosecution of the traffickers and the pimps and the brothel owners hopefully leading to conviction, a sentence in prison. And then for the girls, we have teams of social workers that work with them and different um, homes, we call them aftercare homes, working on dealing with the uh, consequences of the abuse, both in terms of their emotional health, their spiritual health, and trying to find out whether they can return home, whether that's a viable option. If not, what would be a viable life option for them and giving them education and skills so that they can have a have new life.
2: So there's just a multiplicity of levels that need to be addressed. And when we come back, I want to talk a bit about what's happening in terms of government involvement to try to deal with this, where the judicial system is, both here stateside and internationally, and most importantly, what the church, the body of Christ can be doing in partnering with and cooperating with organizations like International Justice Missions um, to help not only raise awareness, but also provide a way out for so many women all over the globe that have been caught up in human trafficking. I'm Craig Roberts You're in tune with Lifeline. A brief timeout, back to more of our conversation with Sean Lytton, Vice President, Field Operations for International Justice Missions, as this edition of Lifeline continues.
1: And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts.
2: Welcome back to this edition of Lifeline. Craig Roberts, along with our special guest, Sean Litton. Sean is Vice President of Field Operations with International Justice Missions. You can get more information, by the way, on the organization online at IJM.org. That's IJM.org. We're talking about the plight of human trafficking around the globe. and You know, it's interesting because so often when we think of slavery, we put it contextually in America... Historically, into what happened here in the United States and many parts of the globe back in the 1800s. And it seems to be somewhat satisfying to think that we've dealt with the issue here at home and therefore it's no longer a problem. It's no longer our problem. But is it? Well, it is in fact at many levels. Not only does it continue to be a global problem, but in fact, in many respects, it's our problem both in terms of the fact that many of these women that are being kidnapped or given promises of a new life in America, brought here to be engaged, and they find out later, in the sex trade, and then literally end up getting trapped in that lifestyle with no avenue to turn, and here illegally, fearful of seeking out any assistance from police or the authorities, and then moreover, growing numbers of people who travel abroad to engage in so-called sex tourism. It's a sad, sad state of affairs, and yet one that is um, reporting perhaps gets better, awareness increases, is something that all of us need to be more educated upon and do something to bring justice to these people. Sean Litton is with us. And Sean, let's talk a bit about um, the problem, whether it goes from um, sexual assault, bonded labor. I mean, there's a variety of reasons why this kind of human trafficking is taking place. And as we suggest, it's not just a problem in the West, it's a problem uh, globally. Even the continent of Africa, we're seeing this take place
3: yeah, it is a global uh, phenomenon, and it's it's important to understand that when we talk about human trafficking, we're not just talking about sex sexual slavery or sex trafficking. It's any type of fo- uh, labor without consent. We're basically talking about slavery. It takes many different forms. So it could be working on a cocoa plantation in West Africa, or working on a fishing boat, forced little boys forced to work in a fishing boat in Ghana, or you know it could be young girls in brothels in Southeast Asia or um, people working in a brick kiln, or a rice mill, or a rock quarry in India. So it takes many different forms, but it's all slavery.
2: Even we've seen uh, recent increased awareness of the so-called blood diamond trade, too.
3: Mm, Yeah, that's another area where anytime, you know, there's a, a lack of law enforcement and a permissive atmosphere where people need labor, it's always going to, you know, slave labor is always cheaper, right? But if there's no law enforcement, then there's no reason for the people um, who own the facility to to pay, so they can just trick people into it. There's a plentiful supply of people who are desperate for work.
2: This is a problem taking place at many tiers in the West, in the developed nations, in developing nations and one that I think needs to be dealt with at a variety of levels. Talk to us a bit about the role and uniquely that IJM is playing in all of this.
3: Well, the first thing that we're doing is is in the places where we're working in Southeast Asia and India and Africa and Latin America, we're basically shining a a flashlight right on the issue. But a lot of people will say there's terrible trafficking, but to actually go in to work undercover, to actually document the situation, to show exactly how it's happening, and then to collaborate with the local justice authorities to take action, to take action against the perpetrators and to ensure the rescue and restoration of the victims. But that's not enough. It's just not enough to rescue um, rescue the girls. You've got to do something that prevents other Girls, other young women, other people from experiencing this abuse. In order for that to happen, there needs to be a reliable deterrent. There has to be an end to impunity. And so, we work with in building the capacity and the will of the local justice system to actually enforce the law and extend the protection of the law um, to all to all the vulnerable young women in the in the area, so that you know the, the brothel owners um, move away from. From working with women against their will from from trafficking and young children,
2: is this casual or are the degrees where it's highly organized and coordinated? I, I asked that question because there seems to be so many layers of this web that 's taking place to you know. Kidnap women in one part of the world, manage to abscond them and get them into countries like the United States, and then get them into a system over here. It would seem to me that at certain levels, uh, Sean, this isn't very casual, but in fact, highly organized.
3: Yeah. So it's true that it, there's a full range. So, for example, in the United States, it is highly organized. You're dealing with or, or organized crime. Same thing in Eastern Europe in asia there are places where the criminals are highly organized and other places it's it's just a simple brothel that's being run by you know a, a local businessman etc local pimp um, in, in terms of the the labor trafficking it could just actually be the regular business practice of that area is that you you trick people into working in your brick kiln or your rice mill and then you you hold them there and you never let them leave and you You pay them just enough to buy enough food to live, and it's a regular business practice. So it's it's not even seen as a crime, even though it's against the law.
2: I know that your organization has been successful at creating, creating some pretty successful pilot programs in certain parts of the world. I know specifically in Metro Cebu in the Philippines over the last several years, um, you, in working with local authorities and spreading out in, throughout the region, uh, have been successful, I understand, Sean, in seeing a reduction in child sex trafficking of nearly 80 percent?
3: Yeah, that's true. Um so in that in that case um, it was a pilot project and there was a uh, a measurement taken by a group of international criminologists to get a, a level of what was the level of abuse happening in the city and then we instituted our program basically increasing the capacity of law enforcement the capacity of local prosecution the judiciary working with aftercare facilities to increase the level of services going to victims and. And then uh, three years later, when they came back and did another measurement to see the effect of the arrests and the rescues and all the rehabilitation, they found 80 percent fewer girls being exploited in the city and in the metropolitan area and 75 percent fewer establishments that had any children at all. It It was a pretty amazing result.
2: In addition to not only reducing the atmosphere that that allows this typically to to flourish, providing victim relief, aftercare, uh, accountability then, too, for the perpetrators of all of this, um, long-term transformation, do you get the sense that we're starting to make some headway and moving in the right direction?
3: Absolutely. In the Philippines, for example, so after we instituted that project and the government saw the results, they came to us and said, can you help us on a national level? And, and the, the, the key issue with all these projects is, are they sustainable? In other words, unless it's the government itself doing it, no organization like IJM or any other organization can sustain it on their own. But in this case, the Philippines took the model in Cebu and is now replicating it throughout the country with their own money, their own resources. They're setting up new police units. They're expediting the prosecution of trafficking cases. They're increasing the capacity of the aftercare systems. The government's doing this on their own, and so we're seeing the ripple effect of just one model of showing how how it can work to increase the, 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 the enforcement of the law can reduce the problem, and now it's being replicated throughout the entire country. And in the other countries where we're working, we're seeing the same effect that gradually it's happening at a, a slower rate, but gradually um, as people see the results, they, they, want, they want to put more energy into it.
2: And, of course, your organization is helping to spearhead a lot of this, educate folks. And toward that end, we mentioned the fact that you are in town speaking at a conference dealing with this very issue. If ultimately, Sean, folks want to find out more about how they can get involved in partnering with IJM to make a difference and the role that the church needs to be playing, quite frankly, from the standpoint of our justice obligation, what kind of resources are available through the IJM website toward that end?
3: Well, the the website is by far the best place to start. There's also um, a, an app you can download if you have a smartphone. Um, you can follow us on Twitter or Facebook. Um, there's, a, there's a book called Good News About a Justice that you can find, you know, through, through the website or, or through a, um, a bookseller um, that kind of lays the foundation for what we're doing, what the biblical foundation is for seeking justice for the poor and the oppressed. Um, You can become a freedom partner. You can support the organization financially. You can pay for the rescue that the poor cannot afford to buy for themselves. Um, You can sign up to receive our uh, upcoming holiday gift catalog. You can give the gift of rescue to people. And uh, most importantly, and what I'd love for people to do, is join us as prayer partners. Um, You can do that through the website, and then you'll get updates on kind of where we're working, the obstacles we're running against, up against, and you can help us through prayer. You can actually pray for these operations that we're trying to get done to rescue
2: these people. Absolutely. But ultimately, we want to encourage folks to not only get educated, get involved prayerfully, but get behind supporting the organization and working in countries uh, globally um, on a variety of continents. We mentioned Latin America, Africa, South Asia, Southeast Asia. You can get more information, again, online at IJM. That's for International Justice Missions, IJM.org. And Sean Lytton, Vice President, Field Operations for International Justice Missions. We appreciate the time.
3: Thank you so much, Craig. It's been a pleasure.
1: And now back to Lifeline with
2: Craig Roberts. If you Google... Demise of Detroit. Jarrell and I were just talking about this during the break. The photographs of the destruction of once was a great, proud, and glorious city is alarming. It is shocking. It is dismaying at so many levels. You know, the population of Detroit today is barely seven hundred and two thousand. At its peak, it was over million nine hundred thousand strong. The number of vacant, dilapidated, empty buildings. The amount of erosion that has taken place to the heart of that city is startling. And oddly, as much as we look at Detroit and the demise of its architecture, it kind of sets up a visual picture of what's been going on in our nation's moral, familial, and spiritual infrastructure as well. You know, out here in California, we talk about how the West was won back in the 1800s, now it seems as if so much of the West, collectively speaking, the Western world, is being lost. In fact, How the West Really Lost God is the title of a new book by best-selling author Mary Eberstadt. And Mary, thank you for taking time to be with us tonight. Mary, by the way, is Senior Fellow with the Ethics and Public Policy. And um, we appreciate so much you taking a couple of moments to be with us.
4: Oh, thank you, Craig. Thank you for having me.
2: Boy, this this demise of... What we used to know as our nation, and I think anybody who who spends any time in God's Word and any time reading the newspaper uh or watching the news has got to see it all around us as much as we've seen the evidence of the horrific decay of what once was a a great and proud city called Detroit. A lot of that's going on in the family and in quite frankly the church today in the West too, isn't it?
4: Well, it is if you look at the news cycle just from the past couple of weeks and you see all of these horror stories. That's just the latest example of what I think speaks to a lot of people. A lot of people want to know, well, what what happened to God? Uh, What happened to God-fearing people? And they are right to wonder that question, because if you look at statistics from Western Europe, for example, you see a sharp fall off in uh, church attendance over the last few decades. In the United States, although it's more religious than Europe still, You see a rise in the number of people in their 20s who say that they are none of the above, no religious affiliation. So this idea of secularization, or Christian decline, depending on how you want to put it, is real. Um, But the question is, what's causing it? Since the Enlightenment, we've had a secular answer to that question, and that is, well, you can expect Christianity to decline because it's what... Karl Marx called the opiate of the masses. It's a a superstitious bundle of beliefs that will go away as people get more rational and more educated. And this is what a lot of sophisticated people think, including now. But this storyline isn't right, Craig. It doesn't hold up when you put it against the data. It's not the case that the better educated you are, the less likely you are to be a Christian. As a matter of fact, in the United States, Uh, There's data that show the opposite, that as you go up the socioeconomic ladder, people are more likely to believe in God and to go to church. The same was true in Victorian London. That's another example I cite in the book. So it's not the case that education alone drives out God. And same with prosperity. It's not prosperity alone that drives out God. There are plenty of prosperous Christians all over the world. So something else is going on in Western secularization, and that's what I'm trying to get at in the book, because I think the answer amounts to two words, the family.
2: Well, and let's talk about that, because there is sort of this chicken or egg which came first scenario set up here. I mean, we certainly recognize that there has been a significant decline in in faith, specifically Christianity uh, in the West, and I think logically we could conclude that as people are less inclined to follow a, a strict belief system that will dictate or somehow lend direction to their behavior concerning things such as uh, children outside of marriage, uh, divorce, uh, abortion, things of this sort, that there's certainly a a strong connection there. Uh, Then, too, I think we could also argue that there is a, a sense of support between uh, the family and how that as the family falls apart we're less inclined to go to church we're not working mm-hmm. together in, in kind of that harmonious unit anymore that we're no longer than as actively participating in the church so I guess it kind of comes down to which comes first does religious decline lead to the disintegration of the family does family decline lead to religious disintegration or is it a bit of both
4: Well, I think it's both, but the point is that the conventional way of looking at this is to say, well, first comes religious decline as people sort of sit in the corner one by one and decide that they have a problem with this part of Scripture or that part, or that it's not reasonable to believe in the Bible, and then comes the decline of the family. This is how conventional sociologists tell the story. But my point is there's something else going on here, which is that family decline encourages religious decline, and let, let me just give you a few examples of what I mean by that, because Please. there are things that everybody can understand. So we live in a time when many millions of households don't have a dad in the home, for example. We've seen this incredible rise in um, fatherless households. Now, if you're the child of a household like that, I think you have to make an extra conceptual leap to understand this very basic christian idea of god as a benevolent loving father Mm -hmm. because if you've never known a benevolent loving father that's an idea that's foreign to you so that's just one example of how the way we live now in fractured and atomistic families can put an extra barrier in between an individual and religious belief None of that is to say that folks from broken homes can't become you know, perfectly religious people, but it is to say we have new impediments to that leap that didn't used to exist. So similarly, the Christian story is saturated with family imagery and family ideas uh, from the get-go. I mean, this is a religion that starts with the, uh, the miraculous birth of a baby. We live in a world with falling birth rates, and smaller families... Many people grow to adulthood without ever having held a baby or taken care of a baby. Don't you think that makes it a little bit more uh, exotic or foreign to think that you could have this religious story that begins with a baby? So these are just some examples of what in the book I refer to as the phenomenon that family illiteracy breeds religious illiteracy. So this is a two-way street. It's not just that religious decline leads to family decline it's also that not living in extended natural families the way people have throughout history up until very recently puts new barriers in the way of religious belief.
2: Well, most certainly so. I mean, you think, for example, about the redefining of the family unit these days, that, for example, where uh, certainly when I was growing up, uh, mom and dad took you to church. We went together as a family and participated as a family in, in uh, you know, religious services and so forth. I think you could argue today that, well, a lot of parents as a single parent would say, I don't have time for that. You know, I'm working two jobs, and I've got to raise five or six kids, whatever the number might be. And so uh, spending copious amount of times at church is oftentimes the, the furthest thing on their mind. So is it any wonder that they're, number one, not seeing the model the way God designed it. Number two, there's not a motivation that would set up the mentoring necessary that would do provide the role model to understand, hey, there's benefits to all of this. And when I grow up and someday have a family of my own. I wish to continue these self-same traditions. So is it any wonder that I think there's a very strong connectivity, as you're suggesting?
4: Yes, and continuing those traditions is a big part of it. This is something else I talk about in the book. You know, a lot of people uh, say, well, it's not that God has disappeared from Western society. It's that people have gotten more spiritual. They're into different kinds of practices, New Age practices, etc., Uh, So they're still spiritual, they're still sort of religious. And I'm not saying they aren't, but what I am observing is that if you read the studies, you see that those are not people who pass down their faith to their children. Those kinds of things don't get transmitted through the generations. And part of the reason is that, for whatever reason, it is traditionally religious people who tend to have children in this country, and not just in this country, but across uh, Europe and Israel and uh, pretty much every place that it's been studied for whatever reason secular people have no families or small families so what you see over time is that what gets passed down through families and families of size is traditional religion and not these variations so non-traditional households uh, you know might go to church and regard themselves as Christians but they're not likely to pass on the traditions of Christianity to their children and their grandchildren. And that's a really interesting phenomenon.
2: And the other thing, too, we can make an interesting contrast and comparison here with the rise of the spread of Islam around the world and seeing that largely most of that is happening, certainly not because of their effective evangelism tools, but rather because of the birth rate and the emphasis on the family, the family unit, and Uh, procreating at large levels in order to increase the size and the influence and therefore the impact of Islam across the world. So they understand this, and this is something that for a long time, certainly in in Western Europe, uh, with uh, emphasis on procreation uh, within the church, helped grow the church's numbers as well. We're taking a look at a fascinating new book called How the West Really Lost God, Mary Eberstadt, the best-selling author, is with us today. Uh, The new book, by the way, published by Templeton Press, and you'll find it at bookstores throughout the Bay Area as well as through um, the usual suspects like Amazon.com. Mary, by the way, is a research fellow at the Hoover Institution, and we're going to come back to more of this question as we talk about many of the things that have happened to undermine Christianity in the West. And most importantly, it wrestles through the question, is there anything we can do to stop this decline or is this something that's simply inevitable as much as we might anticipated looking at the decline of what was happening to the Roman Empire, that eventually this is just the way things are going to be? Do you think? We'll come back to more of the conversation as Lifeline continues.
1: And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts.
2: Mary Eberstadt is with us tonight. We are talking about her new book, How the West Really Lost God. And, you know, we're seeing this strong connection with a lot of things, too, in terms of just the shift in our thinking, aren't we, Mary? I mean, in in terms of the the, the rise of things like moral relativism, secular humanism, things of this site, which which always kind of tend to take all of the kind of one-by-one dismantling the foundations of our faith, don't they?
4: Well, there's that, and there's also the fact that the new atheists occupied the public square for a while, and between them and what's been going on uh, in in this administration, you could argue that um, Christians have been taking something of a rhetorical beating out there. Um, But that does not mean that all hope is lost, and that's actually part of why I wrote the book, because I think there are a lot of things going on that point the way to a religious and with it a family revival down the road.
2: How do we go about affecting that? I mean, as much as we recognize that there is a significant atrophy going on of not only the spiritual strength of America, but the West in general, and I think it's fair to include Europe in this, uh, and then, too, the, the demise of the American family. We mentioned here at the start of our conversation, Mary, uh, the, such things as the high rate of abortion, divorce in our country single parents. You know that 70% of the births in the city of Detroit today are all to unwedded mothers. So looking at this, what can we do to help stem the tide or reverse this slow apparent march toward the eventual destruction of Western society and civilization?
4: Well, let me give you a couple of reasons, Craig, why I'm an optimist about this. Um, First of all, in the book, the first thing I try to do is get rid of this idea that I think is the most Prevalent idea uh, describing religious decline: this Enlightenment idea that Christianity's eventual demise is inevitable—that as people get smarter and richer, they will decide that they can jettison this thing. This is not what has happened. The data don't show it. The timeline doesn't show it. So it's really important to understand, first of all, that the idea of inevitable decline has been contradicted by the facts. That in itself is grounds for optimism i think the second thing i think is really interesting is the relationship between christian decline and the welfare states of the west for many decades now we've had these gigantic welfare states telling us that they can be counted upon to act as family substitutes. if you remember the the julia video that was part of the reelection campaign of president obama that one about the young woman who is helped from cradle to grave by the welfare state, from daycare to old age, that's an example of what I'm talking about. This promise has been out there, but if we look at what the welfare states of the West uh, are doing now, if we even read the financial pages as as laymen and laywomen, we see that these states are in incredible financial trouble. We see that the shrinking of the family and the fracturing of the family has put incredible burdens on the welfare state picking up the pieces and bankrolling the fractured families of the west and we see that down the road they are unsustainable because there are not enough taxpayers to go around it's really as simple as that it's more obvious in western europe than in america quite yet but we are headed in the same direction just as we were headed in the same direction with rates of family fracture and rates of secularization So, the point is when the welfare states of the West are revealed to be incapable of keeping the promises that they have made, people are going to do what people always do in times of adversity. They go home. They go to church. They look for those elemental, organic connections of what's nearest to them. We saw this after 9-11, when many millions of people who had not been in church in a long time suddenly showed up, and it was standing room only in the churches for uh, weeks and months after that event. I'm sure you remember that, too, because it was countrywide. Of course. That's an example of how real shocks to the societal system have a way of putting people back in touch with their roots. And for that reason, I think you can argue that down the road, out of the the uh, curtailing of the welfare state or a more realistic understanding of the welfare state, you can actually see the seeds of family and religious revival.
2: Sadly, though, a lot of this comes on the heels, as you suggest, when we've gone through some sort of a major crisis that kind of pulls us together, causes us to reevaluate our priorities, rethink the direction of our lives. It happened, uh, certainly, Sandy Hook it happened after nine eleven. 11 So at the end of the day, is it maybe things such as the current moral, political, economic crisis that in a sense might sadly create the groundwork for spiritual revival in the West?
4: Yes, but I don't think it has to be catastrophic necessarily. Um, one of the things I, I note with interest is that I, in 2008, during the uh, economic crash then, a couple of interesting things happened that weren't much talked about, but one was the the return of adult children to the homes of their parents because they couldn't afford to move out on their own. To the extent that this was noticed, people thought it was a bad thing, um, you know, that they should have had the money somehow to move out on their own. But I see a silver lining in that, which is the unintentional reinvigoration of the extended family. And I always talk about extended family, not nuclear family. Nuclear family is, a, I think, too constricting a term. I think it holds people to too, too strict a standard. But the extended family, the idea of a family that goes through the generations and is connected in all kinds of different ways, I think we did see the reinvigoration of that kind of family on account of the downturn in 2008. Also in 2008, the divorce rate dropped. Now, that's a really interesting thing. And divorce lawyers themselves said that they thought it dropped because adversity made people think twice about uh, something that's expensive and difficult like divorce. So I do think also that over time people are rational creatures, that the the toll, the various kinds of tolls of the ways that we live now that are so different from the way our ancestors lived uh, will be taken account of. And that people of the future will have a more expansive understanding and a more appreciative understanding, perhaps, of the benefits of the extended family than we have today. You know, so I see all kinds of grounds for hope out there.
2: It's always sad, though, when we have to... Um realize what we have once we come close to losing it. Uh, but maybe, as you suggest, Mary, hopefully, as we kind of get the clarion call out there, the word of warning, call the attention to folks, that those that have an ear to hear, that can hear what the Lord is saying to his church, uh, can rise up and respond and help stem the tide. It's a fascinating read and one I would recommend, How the West Really Lost God, Mary Eberstadt is its author, and our guest on this segment of Lifeline. Again, the book is published by Templeton, and you can get it online, uh, certainly through Amazon.com. Also, Mary has a website, HowTheWestReallyLostGod.com. It's also the title of the book, easy to remember, HowTheWestReallyLostGod.com. And it is a, it's an important indictment, and I think one that we need to take to heart quite seriously. Our thanks to uh, Mary Eberstadt for being with us on this segment of Lifeline.